So Money, episode 870, Alex Banayan, author of The Third Door. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. We didn't know the realities of our family. You know, I knew that we had pay less shoes and the other kids had cool shoes. But like, again, I had shoes, so it was cool. Like, no complaints. I had no idea that when I was five, my dad's used car lot went bankrupt. And that my mom had taken out a second mortgage on the house to help pay for our schooling. Our guest today is Alex Banayan, who grew up in Southern California, the son of Iranian immigrants who, as you heard, had financial struggles and wished for Alex to experience a better life. And while he didn't quite meet their initial expectations, like many Iranian parents, he was encouraged to become a doctor, a lawyer, an academic. The 26-year-old has today accomplished more than many do in a lifetime. Frustrated at school and tempted to venture on his own to discover the secrets to success, he dropped out and embarked on a quest to interview some of the most accomplished and most difficult people to reach, Bill Gates, Quincy Jones, Maya Angelou, many more. Their conversations and Alex's own coming-of-age story and how he managed to score these interviews are in his book, The Third Door, The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launch Their Careers. So how did Alex land these interviews? What's the meaning of the third door? And how did winning the prices right contribute to all of this? And we're in for a treat. I have a special co-host with me today, George Itzak, who is a producer for NBC News, a friend of mine, and an incredible human being who has been on this show as a guest before. Check out George Itzak's interview. George actually found Alex for me, recommended him for this podcast, loved his idea, and we all decided, let's get together. We went to NBC Studios and recorded this. One of the few times I actually left my apartment to record an interview, This is a special one. Here's Alex Banayan. Alex Banayan, welcome to So Money. Why are you laughing? Because your pronunciation of my last name is so perfect, it feels like I'm at home. Like you're at home. But actually, well, thank you for saying that because it's the Iranian connection here. I I have to live up to my Iranian roots and actually pronounce your last name correctly. And for those of you wondering, I'm Farnoosh Torabi. Okay. (laughs) Say that again. That was so satisfying Farnoosh Torabi. Say your name with the Farsi slang. Alex Banayan. Yeah. But Mm. every time I say that, it feels like I'm about to get in trouble by like my grandparents. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like that's- Danger. Right. Exactly. Get over here. Um, (laughs) So good to finally meet you in person. We, uh, I'm here with George Itzak, who is a friend of the show. For everyone listening, you know George. He um, has been supporting so many as a listener, behind the scenes, helping me find some incredible guests, including Alex. He's been on the show. He works for NBC. And it's a pleasure to be co-hosting my first time really having a co-host on so many, but couldn't think of a better person to, to join me for this particular interview because, George, you discovered Alex... Yeah, thank you for that intro, Farnoosh. Yeah, I um, I was reading The Third Door on Vacation. It was my beach read. And I was just like, you know what? This guy, I got to talk to him. I got to meet him somehow. Let me do it on Farnoosh's podcast. 
Well, thank you for thinking of us, all of us. Alex, um, George mentioned your book is called The Third Door. And I want to talk about the behind the scenes of this book, because, of course, there's all the advice from the book that I think is so uh, valuable to especially people that are kind of coming of age and trying to figure out their way in the world. But even just the process of writing this book, coming up with the idea um, you know, chasing down the interviews. You've got Warren Buffett in here. You've got Bill Gates, uh, Maya Angelou. Jeez, wow. So there's there's a couple of stories here that we want to um, unpack, and there's also your own personal story that dates all the way back to birth yeah. as a, as an Iranian American <laughs> from Los Angeles. I'm an East Coast Iranian. You're the West Coast Iranian. Um, I like the Biggie and Tupac of yeah. Persian Jews, <laughs> and I'm the honorary Iranian. I You're the honorary Iranian. I yeah. thought George was Iranian when I first met him. Um, but let's so 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 there are a lot of ways we can kind of you know enter into this uh, this conversation. But I think it would be great to just start with the third door. The book is called The Third Door, The Wild Quest to Uncover How the World's Most Successful People Launch Their Careers. Explain the idea behind The Third Door. Why is it called The Third Door? So for the past seven years, you know, I've been obsessively studying success. And when I was starting out, you know, there was no part of me that was looking for that, you know, quote unquote, one key to success. You know, we've all seen those TED Talks or, you know, those business books. And normally I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening as I went on this journey is I realized every single person I talked to, you know, like you mentioned, whether it's Bill Gates for business or Maya Angelou for poetry or Lady Gaga for music, they all treated life and business and success the exact same way. And I don't know if you guys are music fans, but it's sort of like there was a common melody in every single conversation. And, you know, the lyrics were different, but the melody was the same. And the analogy that came to me is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance, where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, that's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Spielberg became the youngest director in Hollywood history. They all took the third door. What was your third door into creating this book? I understand you started this in... Your teen years. I was 18. Yeah. So you didn't have a lot of money, maybe some bar mitzvah <laughs> money that, you know, you, you cashed out. Um, but I was all out of bar mitzvah money. You're all out of bar mitzvah money. You ha- come up with this idea to now go on this journey to, you know, find these people, talk to them, learn, and teach others along the way. It requires money <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And like you said, this was the, this was the book I was dreaming of reading. And I thought, you know, naively, Getting the interviews would be the easy part. I thought I would just call up Bill Gates, interview him and, you know, interview everybody else and I'll be done in a few months. That I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part was getting the money. So, you know. I love this, by the way. Can I just tease? It involves, it involves, was Bob Barker still the hosting prices? Not, not, not at the time. And what, (laughs) what ended up happening was two nights before final exams. I was a freshman in college at the time. I was 18. Two nights before finals, I was in the library doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. Cry. 
cry and go on Facebook. Procrastinate. Right? <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm on Facebook and I see someone offering free tickets to the Price is Right. And my first thought was, what if I go on the game show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment at all. Plus, I had a problem. I had never seen a full episode of the show before. You know, I'd seen bits and pieces when I was homesick from school in fourth grade, but I'd never seen a full episode before. So you should have called me. You should have called me. Are you a big Price is Right fan? Huge. I watch a lot of TV when I was growing up. That's a good backstory to the whole podcast. Yeah. That you are a giant Price is Right fan. And now you have. Oh my God. I used to play imaginary Plinko. Like I I used to flip the mattress up and like my brother and I used to pretend. Anyway. If there was a movie about your life, that Mm -hmm. would be the shot they would do of your that and like three's it. company and what's like a huge daytime ABC tv huge, oh and like all the soap operas santa barbara young and the restless days of our lives but continue your story <laughs> tell tell me about your price is right experience so you know i tell myself i remember telling myself this is a stupid idea you know you've never seen a full episode of the show before you have finals in two days i was pre-med in college at the time you know, like all good Persian kids. So I told myself it was a dumb idea and to not think about it. But I don't know if you guys have had one of these moments where an idea just keeps clawing itself back into your mind. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea, I remember I was sitting at this little round wooden table in the corner of the library. And I open up my spiral notebook and I write best and worst case scenarios, you know, to prove to myself it was a bad idea. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. (laughs) And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said I had to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I found it. I the probably book. saw this episode. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like a movie. Uh, right. And we'll get to that because I think that Hollywood yeah. is coming. Uh, not uh, I know you have a question. Yeah. I, Price is right. So, you know, you're in this position. You sort of have this cash rained down on you from above, right? You sold the boat, which is how you got the money. I sold the boat for $17,000, which to an 18-year-old is a million bucks. Yeah. You know, I remember taking all my friends to Chipotle the next day saying, like, free guacamole for everybody! You know, I felt like I was a millionaire. So, yeah, you have this mountain of cash in front of you. I mean, you feel like you can do anything, right? I never heard that term, a mountain of cash, but I guess at that time, that's what it it was like for me. And you have this great phrase in the book, you call it in this moment in your life, you call it the upside of being naive mm. because you had money, you had a goal. You thought, yeah, I'll get it done in the next couple of months. No problem. Right. With no awareness of how the world works. Yeah. yeah. And you didn't know this was right. the start of a seven year journey. No, I thought it'd be done in a few months. So do you, do you sort of miss <laughs> that feeling of being naive of like feeling unlimited? You know, any project is possible. When there's a will, there's a way. Or did the process sort of beat you down over the last seven years? That is probably (laughs) the most pertinent question to the face of life I'm in right now. Wow. Well, should I leave you two alone? (laughs) (laughs) This is like the start of a therapy (laughs) session. You know what's interesting? I've become aware that I've definitely lost that essence in some aspects. 
when it comes to writing, you know, I went through seven years of working on this book. So when people are like, oh, you're going to write another book? Like I have like, Ugh. you know, flashbacks of, you know, it's like someone who just gave birth. They're still in the maternity ward and they're like, oh, are you thinking of number two? It's like mm-hmm. you haven't even left the hospital yet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, dude, I am super naive about 99% of other things in life. So I'm very excited about other projects because <laughs> I'm like, well, that stuff should be super easy. Yeah. So while I definitely have much more awareness to the amount of work um and rightfully so, you know, to write a, a book that's a, a page turner. I have no idea how other things work, so I'm just as excited to try them out too. So I still have that naivete and this is the thing. Everyone knows that there's advantages to being an expert. You know, you know the way the world works, you have connections, you have resources, but no one talks about the advantages of being an amateur and the advantages. And it's not about an age in life. It's really about a stage. You can be 60 years old, switching careers when you're new to something. The expert views the world through a lens of limitation and the amateur views the world through a lens of possibility. And that's the most empowering thing you can have. Perhaps. And I also think there's something to be said about how the world views amateurs as underestimating them. Oh, yeah. Right. So you were underestimated perhaps the entire time. And in so I mean, and and it came with some hard truths like you got rejected some so many times with your book proposal. (laughs) People underestimated your capabilities. And I want to just hone in on that moment in your process. So how did you ultimately get the book deal? You know, the book deal only happened. First of all, I didn't even know what a book deal was. When I was starting this out, I was like, oh, I'll write a book. You know, it, Why not self-publish? I didn't even think it through. What I knew, though, for sure when I was starting out with this book was that Bill Gates, to me, was like my holy grail interview. I started out this journey seven years ago with the really simple belief of I believed if all these people came together, you know, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation, people could do so much more. And to me and to my friends, when it came to business, we wanted to learn from Bill Gates more than anyone. So it took me a whole year to finally get on the phone with Bill Gates's office I had a five minute call from them. I was 19 years old. I thought I was like, at, like inches from the finish line. But pretty much, you know, I get a phone call from Bill Gates' chief of staff saying, look, I've heard about what you're doing. I, you know, I think I'm like 99% there. And he's like, but you're only about 5% there. He said, go get more momentum, go get more interviews and go get a publishing deal with either Penguin or Random House because Bill doesn't do interviews with student newspapers. Call me when you're done. And I remember sitting there on the one hand, you know, my head in my hands thinking, you know, momentum. I don't even know what that means. On the other hand, though, I was like, Random House. I never even heard of that. How hard could that be? It's (laughs) like like that scene in Wayne's World (laughs) where he's like, you know, he's like, so you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) She's like, yeah, so keep going. I'm like, oh, that's all I need? Like a book deal from this thing called Random House? Like how hard could that be? Yeah, and I don't think we should underestimate people like Bill Gates 
they don't do interviews when they're not promoting something. People at that level, right. they do interviews to promote a product. So right. getting them outside of that press window, I mean, it's making contact is. Oh, I was, you know, now in hindsight, right? I have a year, three more years on you. Like what you just described, even though that moment didn't procure an interview, but just the fact that the chief of staff is calling you is a huge indication that this is a this is going a likelihood that this will happen because now you've got somebody in the camp who's warm to the idea, who's like invested a little bit of time and giving you some advice and feedback, and as long as you go and now execute, it's going to happen. That's what I thought. <laughs> to my surprise. Oh, ma'am. You know, this is a whole, like, another two-year quest. Yeah. Um, but specifically, you know, you had asked about the book deal. I was like, okay, cool. How hard could that be? And I had a very simple strategy. I was like, look, I don't know how to do this. It's not like you can just go to college and take a class called, you know, best-selling business book proposals, you know, 101. So I was like, all right, how am I going to do this? I just made a list of 30 best-selling business authors that I admired. And I just sent them all cold emails. And one of the best things about going on this journey was I interviewed Tim Ferriss and he gave me a cold email template that changed my life. It helped me get interviews for the book. It helped me get advice from other best-selling authors. And we can go into that later if you want. But I sent out all these cold emails and the responses flooded in. Wow. Wait, wait tell us one thing from that template email like you gotta you okay so just, this is it right yeah, yeah tell me so if anyone wants this you know this is how it works you know dear so-and-so i know you're incredibly busy and you get a lot of emails so this will only take 60 seconds to read boom next paragraph one to two sentences max of who you are and really context that's relevant to that person this is not your life story it's just one to two sentences and then the next paragraph again one to two sentences max of a hyper-specific question that they can answer without thinking. You know, Farnoosh, what's a book you recommend for someone who wants to get into finance or, you know, something that they can just spit back and answer. And then the ending is the clincher. I totally understand if you're too busy to reply. Even a one-line response would completely make my day. All the best, Alex. And you would be shocked how frequent this gets a response from people like Malcolm Gladwell or Sheryl Sandberg. It's remarkable. Wow. And you got those people to reply. Do you know what's amazing? Not only did it work for me and my journey, now that the book's been out for six, seven months, my favorite thing is to, you know, in the middle of the night, if I can't sleep, go on and see the Amazon reviews. My favorite ones by far is when people in caps lock go, the cold email template works. It works. Yeah. It works. Have yeah. you tried it? You know, I haven't tried that template, but I've been a big fan of cold emailing my whole life and cold calling too, frankly. And I've gotten amazing results. And I mean, do you think people don't do it enough when they have someone they admire? They just, people don't reach out. They, they create a block. I think in their mind, they don't think it's possible. So they don't even try. And number two, even if they try because they're not sure if it'll work, They'll like sweep and worve away from the template and try to mix it. If you just follow, it's this isn't cooking where you can put your own twist on it. It's baking. Follow the cold email <laughs> template to the T. You're full of metaphors and similes <laughs> and analogies. That, you, that's your next book. Is like life, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, that by Alex Ben. That a, that's a good. Time. Um, 
So let's get to some of the advice from the book, shall we? Yeah, let's go into it. Um, what was your favorite, besides the Bill Gates interview, which we, we'll leave those for people to read the book to find out actually how you secured it. I'm going to tease that. So people go out and buy the book. But what was your what was your most pivotal learning from the book that changed your life? Hmm. Advice that you got. Yeah. You know, I remember being young and always like messing with my mom and be like, mom, I have two sisters. I was like, mom, who's your favorite kid? Like I was that annoying, you know, son who's like, mom, who's your favorite? She's like, I love you all equally. <laughs> and now that I'm a little older and I, you know, which is of, not true. By it's the not. Way. She, that's had, she had a favorite. Now that I have this book with all these different <laughs> chapters and people are like, what's your favorite chapter? I know the truth. You have a favorite. And, you know, every week the favorite might change, but you have yeah, a favorite. Right. Right. And I would say the ch- the chapter, the interview that changed me most as a person was the one with Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew what a lot of people knew about Quincy Jones. I knew he's the best-selling music producer in history, has more Grammy nominations than anyone in music history. He's produced the best-selling single of all time, We Are the World, oh. the best-selling album of all time, Michael Jackson's Thriller. He discovered Will Smith and Oprah Winfrey. He's undeniably one of the most important people in entertainment history. But the second I stepped into his house, I realized I didn't know the half of it. You You were in his house? So this is the thing. This is towards the end of the journey. Okay. So, you know, the start of the book is me, 18 years old, chasing people on the street and through grocery stores. But by the end, (laughs) by the end, it starts, you know, gaining momentum and coming full circle. And the chapter with Quincy is the second to last chapter in the book. And, and I walk into his house and it's this perfectly circular living room, you know, gold light coming from the bottom and in walks in Quincy Jones and he walks in slowly. Is he walking or is he floating on the, on the, (laughs) can I just say something? He was floating. Yeah. The way he walks, he almost glides, you know, and that the, Michael Jackson the epitome movie? of cool. Yeah. And, you know, he walks in with this long blue velvet robe, you know, gold trim along the bottom. He looks like the alchemist. And he walks in there and he's like, where are you from, my man? And I'm like, oh, hi, Mr. Jones. I'm, I'm from Los Angeles. And he goes, no. I said, where are you from? And I'm like, uh... Oh, oh, I'm You're like, I took the, the my, my family's from Iran. Oh. And he goes, that's what I thought. And then he <laughs> launches into a 30 minute story of dating a Persian princess, trying to break the Ayatollah out of prison. And he sucks me into the Quincy Jones vortex. And it is the happiest place on earth. You know, he's telling me about the pyramids of Egypt, Rio's carnival, pretty much for three hours. I'm sucked into this vortex. Are you recording? Oh, yeah. yeah it is okay. unbelievable. He's a I'm not even asking questions. Yeah. He pretty much is like, this is what you need to know. He's like reading my mind and telling me exactly what it's. It was the most remarkable interview. And it's the only interview I can confidently say, you know, the one with Bill Gates was unbelievable. And I learned so much about, you know, business and negotiation and sales. But with Quincy Jones, it was the only interview I walked in one person and walked out another. He taught me two big things. The first was he helped me realize, and again, this is at the end, towards the end of the seven-year journey. He helped me realize that I had spent this entire journey constantly looking up, up at the world's richest man, up at the world's most famous director. And he was trying to show me the value of looking wide, looking to the far corners of the earth and 
really soaking up the knowledge and the wisdom there because that's what makes the world so rich. That was the first thing. The second thing that changed what I completely think about business and success. And the story took place about halfway through the interview. So Quincy Jones is on the couch and he's telling me this story of really one of his early, early, you know, big incidents in his beginnings of his career. And he was going in to get a music publishing deal. And at the time, he's explaining, the music industry was completely run by the mafia. So I didn't know that, but apparently the mob and the mafia ran the entire music business. And he goes in to get a publishing deal. And, you know, he like goes- the Frank Sinatra era? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And, which explains Frank Sinatra's ties to the mafia. Right. So Quincy Jones goes in to go get a, and by the way, Quincy Jones worked with Sinatra very closely. He composed Fly Me to the Moon, one of my favorite songs. So, you know, Quincy Jones goes in to get this publishing deal and, you know, sitting behind the desk is, you know, the head of the company who's in the mafia and he slides across the contract on the table and it says that Quincy will only get 1% of his own publishing. And... The music executive goes, look, you can ask for whatever you want, but you're only getting 1%. And behind him were all his cronies. So Quincy pretty much has no choice but to sign. And I could, you know, feel my body tensing up as Quincy's telling me this. And, you know, Quincy's laughing and smiling as he's telling me this. He's like, oh, man, they took all my shit. And I, you know, I'm getting more and more tense. And then he, he's like, oh, man, I'm still trying to get it back. And I'm like, that's messed up. And he looked at me and we were both surprised why that just sort of blurted out of my mouth. And, you know, the context is important, too, because right before my interview with Quincy Jones, I had a pretty disastrous situation with Mark Zuckerberg. And I still had so much pent up emotion and hurt um, from how that situation with Zuckerberg ended that. I had all this baggage and it was all coming out of my mouth, but I can only see that in hindsight. And that's in the book. Yeah. Okay. And Quincy ends up looking at me almost as if he understands something about me that I don't. And he puts a hand on my shoulder and he goes, that's all right, man. That's how you learn. And it was literally as if my body had been this overinflated tire and all this excess pressure was rushing out. And he looks at me and he's like, look, 99% of people hate their mistakes they don't want to talk about it they don't want to acknowledge it they hate their mistakes and that's the biggest mistake you can make because only when you love your mistakes only when you treat them as your best friends can you learn from them and only then can you grow your mistakes are your greatest gift and you know, that was great advice, but you know, the interview kept moving on, you know, we're talking about this, we're talking about that. And towards the end of the three hours, you know, my head is spinning. I'm so grateful. And I look at him, you know, we're about to wrap up and I'm like, Mr. Jones, I just want to say thank you. I feel like this changed my life. And he's like, how's that? And I'm like, you showed me how to be a person of the world. And he's like, oh, that's beautiful. In what way? And I'm like, well, you showed me the only way you can grow is by traveling. And he's like, no, (laughs) (laughs) you have to cherish your mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it was as if he wasn't going to let me leave his house until I learned that lesson. And finally, in that moment, it clicked. You're like, what's for dinner? Right, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, while I was sitting there with him, I had this epiphany that I had spent my entire journey assuming that the opposite of success 
is failure. And it wasn't until right then with Quincy Jones that I realized as great as, you know, my interview with Bill Gates was, it was my mistakes on my way to get to him that changed me most. And the opposite of success isn't failure. The opposite of success is not trying. Success and failure are just different sides of the same coin. And in that moment, I swore to myself that I would be unattached to succeeding and unattached to failing and instead be committed to trying and growing. So I think that really informed the the content and form of, of your book because, you know, the book could have just been, here are the interviews with these successful people. Instead, you sort of tracked your own sometimes disastrous attempts to get to them. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is a journey to get to these people. And I'm just curious, was that always the intention of the book to to show the, you know, not just the sort of, you know, best takeaways from these top people, but your own personal story? Or how do those two side-by-side narratives develop? So, again, a really good question because it was not the original intention of the book. The original idea that I pitched to, you know, when I had to get that publishing deal, the original idea was I'm going to interview all these people and I'm going to put their words in their own chapter. So chapter one would be Bill Gates in his own words. Chapter two would be Maya Angelou in her own words. Lady, You know, everyone – and it would sort of be – I wouldn't even put my voice in it because who am I? I'm like, you know, this 19-year-old kid. I'm just, a, I'm just an interviewer. It was about two years or three years into the journey. I finally got on the publishing deal. It's been about a year since I got the deal. And my editor in New York, this remarkable guy, he won the Pulitzer the year before. And he calls me into his office and he's like, look, what's the intention of your book? And I'm like, "Uh, that's a weird question to ask. Don't you know you bought the rights? (laughs) Right. Uh, A a year ago, you bought the rights a year ago. I'm like, why, why are we talking about this? And he's like, look, what's your intention? Is it to inform people? Or is it to change their lives? And I was like, well, that's a leading question. It's you know definitely, hopefully, to change lives. And he goes, okay, the book you're writing is not going to do that. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, why didn't you tell me this a year ago? And he's like, I have a son your age. You wouldn't have listened. So pretty much he had me purposely writing the wrong book so he could then have this talk with me. And what he explained to me is something I'm sure you know very well, which is magazine Q&As, you know, as great as they are, very rarely can change someone's life. What changes someone's life is a narrative, a story where there's a relatable character who goes on this, you know, you know, something happens to them. They go on this journey. And as that character grows and stumbles and learns, so does the reader. And I remember sitting in his office. I was like, so thick headed. I was like, okay, like who should be our character? Should it be Bill Gates? Should it be Spielberg? And he's like, no, it's you. And I'm not kidding. It took, I would say maybe like three to six months for me to fully wrap my head around that. Cause I had spent so much time, you know, attached to that original idea of, you know, this is just going to be Q and a interviews. A career book. Yeah. yeah you know, a, a success career book. And that's why this took seven years because it took three to four years to do most of the interviews and then another three years to turn this into a, sort of a page turning narrative. Let's talk about money again a little bit and unpack some of your own personal financial journeys 
starting with you know your childhood. Uh oh. Um, this, is, this, is, this is airing in April, which is going to be uh, Financial Literacy Month. Beautiful. And in partnership with our sponsor Chase, we're asking guests what would you describe as the moment or the experience that really taught you about money at length, going back to perhaps childhood mm. or even that Price Is Right moment. But as you think of yourself as someone who's financially knowledgeable or still learning or having a certain mindset around money, where did that come from? And tell us that story. You know, I was somewhat entrepreneurial as a kid. I remember, you know, just trying to like sell lemonade, you know, that typical stuff. But I would say my entire view of finance changed in my late teens, early 20s when, look, I grew up with you know, the greatest parents. My mom is the reason I am who I am. Um, At the same time, my mom did a very good job of keeping my sisters and I in a bubble, um, which allowed us to grow up, you know, somewhat carefree. We didn't know the realities of our family. You know, I knew that we had pay less shoes and the other kids had cool shoes. But like, again, I had shoes, so it was cool. Like, no complaints. I had no idea that when I was five, my dad's used car lot went bankrupt and that my mom had taken out a second mortgage on the house to help pay for our schooling. That was never talked. Finance was not talked about and almost to this day still isn't talked about much. So it wasn't until I was 19, I started like pulling back the curtains and my mom's like, whoa, whoa, you know, no looking back here. Um, because she just wanted us to live our lives and not worry. She was sort of, you know, creating this separation so we could live our lives while she figured out how to fund it. Um, and it wasn't until I was 19 or 20 or 21 that I started learning that it was funded by a lot of debt, um, credit card debt, you know, mortgages and the older I got, the more I saw the amount of pressure and stress and fear that comes from living in tremendous debt. Um, what it does to relationships, my mom and dad's marriage, it felt like every fight was about money. And it just and it, it wasn't like one day I was like, I'm never going to live like this. It was like a slow trip over years of me just saying, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, look, I understand the life I live is because of the sacrifices my parents made. Um, so I don't knock them at all. If I was in their position, I probably would have done the same thing, which is, you know, do whatever it takes to give your kids a better future. Um, so I'm the, the reason I even have the privilege to say these words out loud is because of what they've done and what they've lived through. Um, at the same time, I also think you almost owe it to your parents to learn from what they went through and not repeat it if you have the opportunity to not repeat it. And I'm just so committed to not, I just see what debt does to people, you know, it creates these psychological shackles where you don't feel you have that freedom. You don't, you know, you sort of are like imprisoned by the next payments, you know, and that transformed how I view my own finances. 
of, you know, and again, I, I know how fortunate I am to even say this, but I would rather live modestly under my means than live luxuriously over my means. Because I just know the trade-off financially. I would rather go to sleep without worrying about debt than have a nice car. Mm-hmm. That's my financial mantra. Yeah, that's great. And you're 25. Yeah, 26. 26. You know, since you bring up your family, one of the, I think, most interesting parts of the book, and I think the part that will really resonate to all readers of all backgrounds is you're wrestling with family expectations. I think we all go through this as we grow wrestling up. Wrestling is a nice way to put it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm getting the shit beat out of me. <laughs> but yeah, you know. How about your, you said you have siblings? I have two sisters. They're the best. And and so <clears throat> just quickly, where did, where did they land? And like relative to you, did they go, let's sort of like the traditional path of, you know, in, in Iran, in Iranian culture, like you become an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor, <laughs> or a CEO. Right. Otherwise you're a loser. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, my sisters are, <laughs> but when you said loser with that accent, I just like cringe Cause I was like, Oh no. I like, I was like back at home. Alex, don't become loser. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Um, <laughs> My, my sisters, my sisters, and I could spend, you know, hours talking about them are remarkable. My older sister is a attorney who specializes in special education law. So pretty much her entire job is to help kids with special needs get the rights they deserve. My younger sister is a behavioral therapist who helps kids also with special needs. And my younger sister is currently getting her PhD in psychology to help families and children with early trauma. They are my, you know, my best friends. Yeah. And so to George's point. We talk every day, five times a day. Yeah. um, Now comparing the before and after of sort of your parents and your families, um, you know, embracing or lack thereof of your journey, what's been the transformation there? Hmm. Well, it's definitely a big transformation because when I started writing this book, you know, we sort of joked about it. You know, when you're the son of Persian immigrants, I pretty much came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms and then stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And <laughs> when I was just starting the first year of writing this book, I real, you know, this is after the price is right. I realized sort of like I have to sort of come clean that like, hey, guys, I'm like not really going to my pre-med classes. I'm writing this book and chasing down Bill Gates it was like World War Three in my family. You know, my mom crying, my uncles and aunts, my grandparents, you know, everyone's. In. And then when I ended up leaving college mm-hmm. in order to fully pursue it full time, you know, I'll never forget, you know, for just weeks, my mom just hysterical. And to the point, even my grandmother, my mom's mom, who, you know, helped raise us. I will never forget her coming over, you know, standing on the front steps of our house, trembling, saying, we didn't sacrifice everything for you to throw it all away. And when you're 19, and these are the people who raised you, it feels like your own world is falling apart. And you have this fork in the road of these people did sacrifice everything for me. And I love them more than anything. And they love me more than anything. How can I turn my back on that so I can, you know, quote unquote, follow a dream? 
But then you have to ask yourself when you're 90 years old, are you willing to live a life of wondering what if? And that was at that time at 19, the hardest decision I had to make. And so that's, you know, the beginning of the journey. Now, fast forward to the end where, you know, the book came out, you know, we're here in New York City for the book launch. And my mom actually flew out from LA to New York. And crazy enough, it was the first time she's ever traveled alone. You know, she came out to New York to the book launch and she was standing in Times Square when the book came out, you know, the morning of. And the look on her face when, you know, uh, the NAS, we did a big event at NASDAQ and they put like a big billboard of the book in Times Square right when the book came out. My mom's face and her cheers and her smile was, I started tearing up, not at the billboard, but at my mom's face mm-hmm. looking at it. That's so sweet. That's, that's yeah. gives me goosebumps. That's incredible, Alex. And it's a really great ending. I mean, to this part of your life story where they went from, you know, the doubt and the sort of disappointment to extreme pride. You know, the, in many ways, although this is a book about, you know, success and business, it's also a book about, you know, the unconditional love of a family mm-hmm. and the unconditional love of a mother. And, you know, my mom's a testament to what parents do to help their kids. So no quarter life crisis for Alex. Oh my God. The mo- well, well, there was like at a, the time. Had yeah. Like a 10th quarter. <laughs> right. Definitely when I was, definitely when I was 18 and 19 for sure. <laughs> um, we want to spend more time with you, but obviously you are a busy man and George has to get back to work at NBC. And, uh, we are really grateful for you for, for making time for us during your trip here in New York. Mm. Congratulations on the third door. Um, everybody please go and and as we approach even graduation it's a great book for i think people who are coming into the real world for the first time and and pretty much anyone who's sitting on a beach and wants to you know feel inspired <laughs> yeah. and people making a career change making people career change. looking at different options we got tony robbins giving you a quote on the back ariana huffington dan pink all right, Alex, this is going to round us out. Are so money fill in the blanks? Okay? I love it. Let's do it. All right. If I won the lottery tomorrow, this is more than price is right money. I'm talking like, <laughs> talking like 13, 20, 100 million dollars. The first thing I would do is do nothing. And I've thought about it a lot. Isn't that funny that this is my personality? I think about winning the lottery a lot. I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life, but I think about it a lot and I would do nothing for the first month Mm -hmm. so I can think about what to do. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you win the lottery, I just have heard so many stories. The biggest mistake you make are the decisions you make that first month. Impulsively. Right. Okay. Oh my God. I'm so boring. That was my answer. That is my answer. Yeah. Maybe you'll <laughs> buy your boat back from the prices, right? You'll get everyone Chipotle with extra guac. <laughs> exactly. Extra guac. exactly. Um, that's awesome. Okay. How about this? The the one thing I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Ubers. Especially when it's very cold in New York City and I don't want to walk and take the subway. And the CEO is Iranian. Just <laughs> yes. putting it out there making some changes. When I splurge, I know you said you like to live below your means, but when you do actually treat yourself, you know, kind of go the extravagant route, one thing that you love to spend your money on that is an indulgence, but you can't live without it is. I like to eat at really cool places. Um, I like, oh, do you know what I indulge on? I 
will spend a lot of money on plane tickets impulsively. One of my best friends. Oh, you read in yeah. the book. Uh, Elliot is mm-hmm. in the book. One of my best friends had a very big life moment, a beautiful life moment. And he was in Miami. And I, the next morning at 3 a.m., jumped on a plane to go see him and give him a hug in person. Oh, that's and so nice. we spent a few days together. And that was a, to me, that was the best use of the money to yes, buy a plane ticket. I agree. Ticket. I agree. For sure. Well, that makes memories too when you make yeah. those impulsive trips. And when it's one of your best friends, like, the, again, it's one of those things when you're 90, you'll be so grateful you did it. Your biggest money mistake is. Ooh, not budgeting. Mm-hmm. I sort of like have a emotional budget. I know emotionally how much I'm bringing in and I know emotionally how much I'm spending, but it's not on paper. And if I was smarter, I would put things down. I've sort of been going by the whim of my pants and it's been working, but I would like to become more structured and have things down on a spreadsheet. And You want to ask the last one? So it's a fill in the blank. Uh, I'm so money because... Because I like to have fun. <laughs> and I know that's not the... Coming from a Persian-American, that's... I, and it works. And it works. That's good. That's good. I wish that I had had more fun in my 20s. And you can be... You can have so Y'all fun are and, living vicariously. Yeah. I'm living vicariously through you. You can have fun and be financially responsible too. I I think that people think, you know, fun is like popping bottles in nightclubs. Like, to me, fun is like doing something spontaneous with your best friends. Mm-hmm. That doesn't have to cost anything necessarily. Alex, thank you. Thank you, Thank you, Alex. To learn more about Alex's book, check out thirddoorbook.com. All this information is available at somoneypodcast.com. Download the audio, the transcript. And also while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh and send me your questions for the Friday episodes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.